We are in Revelation chapter 16. And in Revelation chapter 16, we finally get to that place that we have been working our way here for a while. Ever since well, chapter 11 announced that the, there was the, there was the uh, seventh trumpet, which leads into the seven bold judgments. And yet there's all of this, there's been this pause, there's been this interlude to say, well, this is what that judgment is about. This is what it means. This is why it is coming. This is another look at what has been happening on the earth during this tribulation time. And so now we come in chapter 16 to a description of those last final judgments. And this one, this is different. This is a different period. These are rapid fire judgments, one right after the other. And there's no pause for mercy. There's no invitation. There's no mention of the gospel continuing to be offered, which we surprisingly saw throughout the tribulation period that the gospel is witnessed to by 144,000 and by these two prophetic witnesses and by other believers and even at the last by an angel flying across the heavens. And yet, at this stage now, that, that doesn't seem to be an emphasis. It seems like the opportunity has closed. But there's something else. And, and we could spend a lot of time talking about these particular uh, bold judgments, and it's going to look like this. And if you watch current events now, and, and this is lining up, and that means we're probably close. And as I've described before, people have been playing that game for centuries, and the problem is it keeps changing as time goes by. What we need to get out of this chapter, and there's something we're supposed to get out of this chapter, but what we should get out of this chapter ought to be the same thing that would have benefited those early seven churches. You know, it reminded me when we were reading again back in chapter 5. There, the lamb had seven eyes. Isn't that strange? A seven-eyed lamb. Especially when so much of the Bible talks about how, how a, a lamb for an offering is supposed to be without blemished. Well, an unblemished lamb would have how many eyes? Two. Not three. Not five. And certainly not seven. But the seven eyes, the eyes of the Lamb of God are the sevenfold spirit that, is, that goes out throughout the earth. Why sevenfold spirit? Well, there's some pointers to the characteristics of God there, but what about there were also seven churches? And the Lamb is present among his churches by his spirit even today. That was free. It's got absolutely nothing to do with the, with the message today except... This book is written for those Christians and for these Christians. This book is meant to encourage a church going through very difficult times, and this book is meant to encourage and strengthen you. If you're not having difficult times yet, well, just wait. They're coming. Somehow in life, they will be coming, and this book is intended to prepare you for them and to be ready and strengthened for them. And so we're, not, we're, we're going to describe these, these bold judgments along the way, but we're going to focus more on some intentional pauses that seem to, some things that arise out of the chapter that I think we are supposed to not miss. So, what can we learn from wrath? Let's begin. I'm going to comment as I go. Let's begin reading in in chapter 16. We'll start at verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out 
on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. These are what I call the beastly boils. These boils, these sores, these, these terrible and extremely painful malignant sores are for those who looked for safety and security from the beast. Remember they marveled at this empire that has emerged, at this great, strong, and autocratic, totalitarian leader who can war against the beast? Now, here is an empire. Here's a government that we can trust in. Here is a leader who will protect us and provide for us and keep us safe from all threats. Who could war against him? Oh, finally, safety and security, but not from the wrath of God to him and to his followers. It's reminiscent, of course, of the Egyptian boils, the sores on the Egyptians, also the Philistine tumors when they thought that their God had captured the God of Israel, and that went very poorly for them. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 5. But we move on as, as we go through these, these, these bold judgments. The second angel in verse 3 poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Now that just sounds ghastly, doesn't it? I should have saved that one for a little later in October. The, 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 the sea became like the blood of a corpse. We don't know exactly what that means. Does it mean that it becomes a, a dark red and kind of thick, starting to coagulate? What does that mean that it became like the blood of a corpse? Or some of you are making faces back at me. I know it's, it's terrible. But, but maybe, it's, maybe it's more like, well, I thought about that. The blood of a corpse, what is that? Well, there's no more breath. There's no more, and the blood changes instantly when it is no longer oxygenated. The blood cells themselves no longer live, and they no longer carry that oxygenation to the rest of the cells of the body, and death begins cell by cell by cell throughout the body, and decomposition starts. There's no life in it. We know something about um, dead zones in the sea where there's not enough oxygenation and everything dies there. They don't always know why that happens, but that does happen. It could be something as simple as that. It could be that the sea actually turns like blood. It could be this the worst red tide ever. Moving on from there, although the water does actually turn to blood, and it's interesting that the terminology is different, rather than like blood, in verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And we're supposed to remember the plagues of Egypt here. We're supposed to think back to when, um, as Moses said, let my people go, that they may worship and serve me. And Pharaoh says, no, who is Yahweh? And so the test is on. Well, God says, let's find out. And they do. And one of those ten plagues on Egypt is the turning of the waters of the Nile to blood. And not only the water that's in the Nile, but in their storage pools and in their reservoirs and in their ponds and in their, in their water pots. All of the blood turns, all the water turns to blood, and they cannot drink it. And then there's a pause here in verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You'd think the angel in charge of the waters would be ticked off, right? He's supposed to watch over the waters, apparently. And yet this angel in charge of the waters is saying, God, well done. <laughs> 
That's exactly what we've been waiting for. He says, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Your judgments are true. They are just. They are right. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, And maybe it's another angel at the altar. Maybe it's the voices of those martyrs we introduced to earlier underneath the altar. But this voice from the altar says, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So we've had this rapid fire, three quick judgments, not a whole lot of details. And then we we, we pause for three verses to talk about how right and true this judgment of God is. What do we learn it was asked, I was asked the question a couple weeks ago, what edifying, helpful, useful value is it for Christians to study this catalog of God's worst judgment? I mean, is this the kind of message that we go through these seven bowls of God's wrath and we leave feeling refreshed, rejuvenated, ready to take on the world? No, it's kind of a downer of a topic, isn't it? What is the edifying value here? Well, one, one of that is that these judgments are just and right and true. This is exactly as it should be. We have a lots of our own ideas about what God should do, but this is what is right. And that tells us something about it. That there's the word used there. It's what they deserve. It's what they are worthy of. It's the same word that's used when the lamb is introduced and is said of the lamb of God, worthy are you to take the scrolls. You are worthy to open up God's judgment upon the earth because you first bore God's judgment upon yourself for anyone who would believe in you as their Savior. So you are worthy to open up that judgment now because you yourself provided the way of escape from it. And so they are worthy, having rejected God's provision for them and having instead turned not only in passive but in active rebellion against God. And we'll see more of that as we go, that they are worthy of God's response. They are worthy of God's just judgment, that God is going to restore, God is going to make all that's wrong right, and he is going to remove the wrong, he's going to remove the evil, he's going to remove sin. Humanity is worthy of God's wrath. That underscores that salvation can only be of grace. Salvation is not something that we earn by doing more, more, more good deeds than bad deeds, but that God sent his son to die for us. We could never be good enough. We are worthy of judgment. And we need God's rescue. Also, let the severity of God's wrath convince you of the seriousness of sin. If you get nothing else from this section, get that. Let the severity of God's wrath, as it unfolds here, convince you of the seriousness of sin. The human condition is not a matter of minor imperfections that need just a little bit better sin management. If we could just tighten up a little bit, behave a little better, remove a few of the distractions, the temptations, we'd be good and won't God be pleased. That is not the human condition. The human condition is one of persistent and pervasive rot. We are ruined through and through and we desperately need God's remaking. We need to be born again. We need to have a new life. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We need to be made alive in Christ. It is called regeneration, a new life. 
that, that tells us something practically as well. It tells us that, that we need to be careful that you and I don't play with sin. That we don't toy with this thing. You know, maybe you're, you're a younger kid and you look out on your back patio and there's this cute little animal out there. It looks kind of like a cat, but it's not. But he's so cute. It has these big eyes and he's fuzzy and you just want to go out there and, and he's, he's kind of wiping his feet at the window like he wants to come in. That cute, cuddly little creature out on your patio that just wants to play with you is a rabid raccoon that will eat you alive if you open that door. That's what sin is. It looks like a cute, cuddly creature. We could toy with it a little bit. We could keep it at arm's length as we need to. But it'll eat our lunch for sure. It will draw us in and destroy us. Don't nibble around the edges. Your parents tell you, don't, don't play in the freeway. Maybe your parents told you to go play in the freeway. I don't know. That's between you and your parents. But if your parents tell you, don't play in the freeway, don't just, well, I'll just play in the slow lane. You know, I can dodge those cars. It's just a bad plan. It isn't going to work. It's kind of like addiction, addictive behaviors. An alcoholic has no business going to a bar with a friend just to have a Coke. That's just a, that's just a bad plan. It's not going to go well. If, 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 if you've had trouble resisting pornography online, then don't have open internet access by yourself. Don't do it. It's a bad plan. Find a way that you don't have that opportunity. Don't toy with sin. We easily underestimate it, but let the severity of God's wrath convince you of the, of the seriousness of sin and how serious. We need to take sin seriously because God takes it seriously. And then we move on to the fourth angel in verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. It was allowed to scorch people with fire. Now we get to global warming. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, but they did not repent or give him glory. Again, we're not told a whole lot, but you've got an eight-minute warning on this one. I'm told that there's eight minutes time between something that happens on the sun and when that gets here, when the light of, from the sun reaches the earth. We've got eight minutes if we could see it coming beforehand, but we wouldn't, I guess, see it coming beforehand because it takes eight minutes for that light to get here. Oh, you got no warning at all. But, 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 but the sun is going to... Um, it dimmed earlier during the trumpets, and now the sun is going to flare up, perhaps. We don't know exactly what causes the scorching. The ozone hole opens up. We don't know exactly what this is going to look like, but we do know this, that people are going to be scorched with heat. Not only that, but they're going to know that this is not just a natural event. This is not just climate change or global warming. This is not just because we had too much air conditioning and Freon cans. This is bigger than that. This is God himself. Not only is this something that God could have stopped, but God seems to be doing it. They blame God for it. Now, is that right? Should they? Should they blame God for this? At one level, yeah, yeah. God is doing this. God is pouring out these plagues, these judgments against them. Yes, God is doing it. They recognize him as God, and yet they will not yield to him. That's the surprising thing. We see the same thing in the blackouts. Look at, look at verse 10. 
The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish, and they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So now we go to total blackouts. These are not just California rolling blackouts. These are total blackouts. This is even worse. This is not just the electricity. This is natural light as well. This is everything. The earth goes dark. I've been told by some people that it's, it's, it's so dark you cannot see your arm extended. That it's so dark you can almost reach out and touch it. It is dark. And yet you sit in the dark, you stand in the dark, you stumble in the dark, in pain from the beastly boils and the scorching global warming. You're in torment and God's to blame. God has done this. And there is a second takeaway, I think. Twice we're told here about the human response. It's echoed one more time at the end of the chapter. Oftentimes things that are repeated and things that are the, that are the conclusion, that's something you're supposed to notice. That's something you're supposed to take away. And, and so here in a particular biblical event, these seven bulls, we've got this statement that occurs three times because it occurs again at the very end of the chapter. In verse 21, and they, the people, cursed God for the plague of hail because the plague was so severe. So that is the human response, and here we learn something about humanity. First of all, it's been said there are no atheists in foxholes. It can also be said there are no atheists during the tribulation. They know. Romans 1 tells us they know. Romans 1 tells us humanity knows about God, but that they suppress the truth, they hold it down in unrighteousness. It's not that they don't know God is, they don't want God to be. They do not want this God to rule over them. They, like Frank Sinatra, want to do it my way instead of God's way. There is a stubbornness of the human heart here. Have you heard it said, well, if God is real, why doesn't he just come down and show himself to us? If God would show himself in an unmistakable way, then everyone would believe in him. The problem is not, in this case, knowing that God is. It's a God they do not want. A God who is a holy and a just and a righteous God. And you say, well, that doesn't leave humanity any out. If he is so, so demanding of holiness and righteousness, yes, but it was met in Jesus for any who would believe. That's why the Lamb is worthy. And so, and so, and yet rejecting God's provision, still they also reject God's purposes and God's actions. There's an entitlement mindset. We expect God to do the things that we want God to do. And we will let him know about it. We will give God a piece of our mind when God does not do that which we expect and think that God should do. That's prevailing in the world. But that leaks into our own thinking besides. There's the danger. There's a warning there. And sometimes the scripture points out something that, the, that, that others do that is not meant for us to sit here and I, yeah, look at those others. No, no, it's, it's, it's to remind us. There's a, there's a propensity in the human heart here. There's something that we can be warned of as well. You see, they are angry. They curse God for not measuring down to their expectation. To, to, to not do what God wants them to do. Don't expect God to measure down to your expectations and don't expect that you're going to be able to measure up to God's expectations. 
Rather, God has graciously and mercifully exceeded all expectations in Jesus. Their hardness of heart comes from their own rejection of the truth. Romans chapter 1 describes that. There's a hardening of heart that is a danger to humanity. There's a hardening of our, of our actual physical heart that is a danger to us. The cardiovascular system, I quote now from an from a article in the Smithsonian. The cardio, cardiovascular system, our heart and circulation, is one soft tissue that gets calcified, apparently, very easily. According to Arjun Deb, a heart researcher at UCLA, he's referring to the accumulation of calcium salts in the tissues of the heart. Apparently, this is a bad development. It says so here. Calcification in blood vessels can eventually block them, and in the heart, the calcification of the heart will actually block the electrical signals that keep the cardiac muscles beating. That sounds important. It's an inv almost an involuntary thing coming from the brain that keeps the heart beating, and yet the heart can become hardened. It can become calcified so that the heart no longer receives those impulses, the signals from the brain that tell it what it should do, and it no longer does it. And that, apparently, is, is a very serious thing. Now, you'll, you'll be glad to hear this, next, researchers want to look for ways that this hardening of the heart can be reversed. Isn't that good news? There is good news here. I love that little example because, oh my goodness, the, God's answer for the hardening of the human heart is called the new covenant. The new covenant that he makes with us, for us, in Christ where he says, I will take out your hard heart. I will take out your heart of stone or calcium, and I will give you a soft heart. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you. And so that that tender heart, a heart that will be tender toward God and his ways and will be receptive of the leading and the impulses of the spirit to be able to walk in God's ways. There's God's answer for the hardened heart that he warns us about. You know, we can, our hearts can be hardened in unbelief. In Mark chapter 8, just after the feeding of the 5,000, just after the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus and his disciples are embarking again off, off, off across the Sea of Galilee. They go back and forth to the Sea of Galilee a lot. Have you noticed that in the Gospels? A lot of boat rides. If I was, I would want to have the boats on the Sea of Galilee concession if I was in the first century. But there they are, they get into the boats, and the, and the disciples are talking among themselves. They're all worried and upset about something. You know what they're worried about? Oh, man, did you get lunch? No, no, I thought you, no, no, you said you were going to get, and they're back and forth because nobody brought lunch. Here they go, another whole day out across the sea, and whatever they're doing on the other side, and we're not going to get any lunch because so-and-so forgot to bring it. And Jesus says to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet Understand? Are your hearts hardened? What's the hardness of heart that he's talking about? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, well, 12. I imagine a little sheepish sort of a way. 12. What do you and I need? What's going on in life? What, what threat is there? What concern or anxiety that you face 
that you fear that God will not provide. Don't harden your heart in disappointment, but believe him. Trust him. Hebrews chapter 3, 13 says this is one of the reasons we gather together. This is one of the reasons we need each other, as that next step wall says, that the church connected together because we need one another. Tells us to encourage and exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and unbelief. So there's a hardening of the human heart that is very evident at this time, and there's a warning for us that even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of things going very, very bad, and there's persecution, there's hardship for the church, as was described in those early chapters 2 and 3, and yet, church, realize where it comes from, that it comes from the enemy, and continue to trust your God even in the midst of trouble. He will keep you. He will provide for you. And now we get to the sixth bowl. As we move along here, the sixth angel poured out his bowl in verse 12, the bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way from, for the kings from the east. And I saw it coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole earth to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Yes, if you were following along, which is a good reason you should read along in your Bible in case the, the, the pastor skips something, because the pastor skips something. But because you noticed, I'll come back to it. But first, we have this gathering. And we don't know exactly, exactly what they're gathering for. Some take it that the kings of the east now, the Euphrates is dried up. Euphrates is a big deal because that's the border of the land that was promised to Abraham as an inheritance for his people. Not only that, the Euphrates forms a nice water barrier for those from the east, the Persians, the, the, the Parthenians, who threaten Rome on Rome's eastern front. But the Euphrates makes it hard for them to come across in mass. So the idea of the Euphrates drying up and armies coming across, that would cause anxiety in the first century for those who look to Rome for their security. But... They're gathering. These kings, what are they coming for? Are these kings in the east coming to war against the beast to battle him for the rulership of the earth from Jerusalem? Or are they coming to actually join with the beast and his forces one unified worldwide front against this alien invasion that they're preparing for when the Lamb of God, the Son of God, comes in glory with the hosts of heaven? We're not sure which of those. Maybe they come initially to take on the beast and they realize they actually have a, a, a greater shared threat that they're going to unite against in the end. And you can turn to, you can see this battle around Jerusalem at this end days when Jesus comes as in, the, in, the, in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14. I think I gave you that reference. I'm, I'm rushing now. I feel like I'm rushing because I want to save time for something we have at the end of the service. And so, so you have this battle coming, but another interesting point, they rally at this place in Hebrew called Armageddon. 
And so if you, if you went with us to, 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 to a, a, a trip to Israel, September 2024, you would, we would at one point in the, in the midst of that trip, we would stand there at the ancient site of Megiddo, which was a crucial strategic city in its day. It controlled the whole Jezreel Valley. It controlled then the, any trade movement from ancient Babylon, Mesopotamia, all the way down to the coast and down along the coast all the way down to Egypt. That whole highway is controlled by the city of Megiddo so that a pharaoh, well, gee, he was a pharaoh just before um, Israel left Egypt. He said he conquered Megiddo. He says the one who conquers Megiddo has conquered a thousand cities. Megiddo was a big deal in his day, but Megiddo is not much today. In fact, there is no mountain at Megiddo. There's no mountain there. The only hill that's there, the hill of Megiddo, is actually an archaeological tell. It's the layers of the city that the city is built up on, so the city is taller today than it used to be because of the layers over the centuries. It's not a mountain. Not a mountain at all. It doesn't fit. What is this mountain of Megiddo? Well, John actually points out that he's, that he's writing in Greek representing a Hebrew word. And the, there are two Hebrew words that could be translated into that Greek that looks like Armageddon. One of them means the mountain of Megiddo, or it could mean the mountain of assembly. Now that's actually curious to me because that's a key word in the verses surrounding it. Assembly, assembly, they're assembled there. This mountain of assembly seems to be the key thought of this section. I take it that way. Now, maybe they gather at the Jezreel Valley around ancient Megiddo first, and then they move up towards Jerusalem from there. But Zechariah 14 makes clear that the battle is in Jerusalem. That's where there's a battle for Jerusalem, and then there's a battle when the Lord himself descends on the Mount of Olives, and there are earthquakes, and the Mount of Olives even is split into two. And that's where the Lord in his glory defeats those who have rallied against him. And so there's this assembly, and I find that rather ironic, that here, Satan, who intended to set his throne on the heavenly mountain of assembly in Isaiah 14, now is gathered at this mountain of assembly where God said his people would assemble together and meet with him, but Satan has instead installed his throne and his image where he would be worshipped as God, and God says, oh no, you don't. It's over. I'm finishing this at that mountain of assembly because God is coming to dwell on the earth with his people. And at his coming, the seventh bowl, there is skyfall and earthquakes. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple, saying, It is done, and there were flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. So there have been earthquakes, there have been bad ones, but there's going to be worse ones. I call it earth breaks. That the earth is going to be breaking up. All the cities are going to be collapsing. Mountains are going to be moved, leveled. It's going to be unlike anything that has been seen before. And not only that, every island fled away, no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Again, the response to God, blaming him for not doing what it is that they expect that God should do for them. And yet there was a verse that I missed. 
in the midst of that worst possible terrible times, when all hell has broken loose on earth, and when they, the armies of the world rally together, and anybody still alive is caught with them in this battle against the Lord himself. Verse 15, there's some parentheses there. That's the way the ESV sets it apart. It says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. I am coming unexpectedly. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he might not go about naked and be seen exposed. Jesus says, I am coming, so be ready. In this very worst of times, at a time that precludes the description of the earth rallied together and Jesus himself coming to them to meet them in battle, he tells his own, I'm coming. Hold on, I'm coming. You are seeing the worst things happen on earth. Hold on, I am coming. Well, that's what it says even to the church in the first century, because they're not in the tribulation yet, are they? The church of Sardis, the church of Smyrna, the church of Pergamum, the church of Thyatira, they are not in the tribulation yet. It's only the first century. And yet these words are meant to encourage them. They are in trouble. They are facing persecution. They are under great hardship. Some of them are being killed for their faith, even as happens in the world today. And they are told to hold on that their Lord, their Savior, is coming. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. He's already told us. I am coming unexpectedly. Hold on. And he says to them, in the midst of that unexpected coming, stay awake. Stay alert. Watch for it. It's like Jesus tells in... in um, uh, of the man going on a journey in Mark chapter 13, referring to his own company, he says, a man goes on a journey, he tells his servant, he tells the steward, the one responsible for his house, to stay awake, to stay alert, because you don't know when your master is coming. He may come in the evening, he may come in the middle of the night, he might come early hours, he might come later in the morning, but don't doze off, because then the master comes and knocks on the door, and the doorkeeper is asleep, and there's no key from the outside, there's nobody to unbar the door, and so the master of his own house has to sleep on the threshold because his doorkeeper fell asleep. And you can imagine the conversation they're going to have. And Jesus tells his own, stay alert, be ready, I am coming. It might seem at times like he's not, that the church could give up hope. Don't give up hope, he is, he is coming. Rather, Romans 13 and there's a series of verses here I want you to spend some time at in the next couple of days. Romans 13, verse 11. Know the time. The hour has come for us to wake out of sleep. Salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness. Not, let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk rightly as in the daytime, not in partying and drunkenness, not in immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make provision, don't make opportunity, don't nibble around the edges, don't play in the slow lane with sin and its lusts. 
Ephesians chapter 5, I could summarize uh, verses 8 to 20. Walk as children of light. Awake, wake up, O sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ himself will shine on you. Christ will give you life. Redeem the time. Use the opportunities for good in the midst of these evil days. Don't be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit and live in the ways that that describes. 1 Corinthians 15, 34 says, Wake up from your drunken stupor. That's a good line to use in church, right? Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Don't continue in sin because there are those around you who have no knowledge of God. And how are they going to know if you're not ready to tell them? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, be alert. Be aware, be awake, not surprised but ready, sober in faith, love and hope, encouraging and building one another up. Be strengthened to endure trouble as we are waiting for Jesus' coming. That's how Paul uses the same wake-up terminology. That's what I want you to I encourage you. When he says here, stay awake, keep your clothes on. Be ready to go at a moment's notice. Be ready for any opportunity that God might give you at a moment's notice. Be alert in the midst of the darkness. We can easily say, man, it is so, it's so messed up now. There's no opportunity to do anything. It's so messed up now. Jesus can't be anywhere near this place. When it's at its worst, then he comes. And so in the meantime, the lamb with the seven eyes sees and is with his seven churches by the Spirit of the living God. And so he is here with us. And we are called then at such a terrible time to be his light in the midst of darkness. What does staying awake look like for you, for me? It's described in those passages. And so when we, when we take the time to hear from God's word, we have that pattern that's on the next step wall under discipleship groups for a here journal. We have that pattern. And the goal of that is simply this, to spend time in his word hearing from God, that I might know and follow Jesus because I've heard from God in his word. There's a sample of that here journal, a new one this week on that back wall. Take a look at it. But the whole point of that, I want you to do that with these passages. Ephesians 5, Romans 13, 1 Thessalonians 5. Do that this week and say, what is that one thing? Lord, what is that thing you'd have me to do? Let me ask it this way. If you knew, if we were setting dates and you knew that this time next year, don't know the exact date or hour, I'm going to stay safe here, but you knew that this time next year, Jesus was coming. What would you like to see different in your life between now and this time next year? That gives you an idea of one way that it looks like for you and I to stay awake, to be ready, to keep our clothes on. And I don't know about you, but I'm really big on all of us keeping our clothes on, at least when we're together. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Lord, we don't wrestle with what it is that we ought to do, what it is that we shouldn't toy with or be entangled by. Father, oftentimes we know these things. And if we're not sure, if we're not certain right now, what is the next step that I would take in following Jesus? Your word will make that clear. But Father, often what we lack is the courage 
in the midst of these days to be different, to follow you when it doesn't seem like very many others are. Lord, give us that courage. Remind us that your eyes are upon us, that you watch out for us as the one who loves us more than any other, that your purposes for us are good, and that you delight in us to walk in your ways, not merely because that's what you want, but, it's, but because of the joy you want for us. So Lord, let us anticipate your coming. Let us look for it, to stay awake in all the ways that means that we might be your light in the midst of darkness to people around us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.